1: Media Group, this is the Lone Gunman Podcast, With your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die, stay tuned, be right. What is up, people? Welcome to the Lone Gumbin Podcast. This is your host Rob Clark. And today it's episode number 63. And I'm rolling Han Solo today. It is the first solo show in a long time. And uh, I've missed it. Although having guests is is good. And I've been blessed to have some really, really good ones on uh, here lately. Back to back to back to back to back. Um, It feels good. To be able to talk to you today, because I got a lot to get off my chest, and the topic of today's show is, as most of you know from listening to the show, uh, you know I'm kind of fascinated by with, with what was going on in New Orleans uh, before the assassination. <clears throat> it's one of my main areas of focus, and uh, here lately. a lot of Thomas Beckham, Fred crisman related things. Um, I'd asked, uh, author Ken Thomas to come on the show to talk about his book, uh, JFK and UFO. Um, he politely declined. Uh, he said he's not doing interviews right now, but the reason I wanted Ken to come on is I know a lot of people out there roll their eyes at the title of the book and they won't even look at it. They won't even give it the time of day. The book is, is, is not a, a UFO book per se, okay? It, it traces a tale, um, and very well, I might add, and documents with, with, um, you know, with, with actual documents and research. Um, the tale of what the military and, and Army intelligence and everybody was up to back in the, in the late 40s and 50s, <clears throat> you know, up through the, the Kennedy assassination and what Kennedy was trying to do. Um of course everybody out there knows and, and, and a lot of the book uh, JFK and UFO is about Fred Crisman and his life, who he was and what he did um, And if you listen to you know a couple shows I've done on uh, the Dallas action and, and here on uh, The Lone Gummin with Doug, you know we've talked about it some um, you know these guys are interesting characters, okay and you know a lot of people dismiss him because it's hard to find anything on them. And I think that there is a reason for that. Okay, you know, if these guys, you know, I I don't know how to say this without seeming like an asshole, but um, you know, some of these guys that that we have a, a lot of information on, a lot of declassified information on, um, you know, if these guys were truly, 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 you know, big, huge CIA assets, you know, that meant a lot to national security we wouldn't have those documents. They would still be classified. Um, we, and we might never see them. So it's very hard to find information about uh, Fred Chrisman and Thomas Beckham when it comes to official sources. And, you know, the best we can do is take what we got. Okay. So, you know, with Chrisman, it's, it's, it's really hard to pin him down. I mean, it's, it's hard to deny, you know, that he was in certain places, at certain times, and you have to remember that after World War II, and you know, which you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in World War II, and then the war ended, and we uh, we soaked in a lot of these German scientists and and these aeronautic specialists from Germany, the Nazis, um, under Operation Paperclip, and. You know, Alan Dulles was a big force behind getting that done. Um, And, of course, we have the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency in 1947. Um, And it didn't take long for them to get going and and, uh, make a big splash on the global scene very quickly. But what's interesting to me is that also in 1947, we have the introduction of possibly the first ever... uh, real, plausible, uh, crash of unidentified flying objects in Roswell, New Mexico. Um, and the Ramey memo has been, has long been a, uh, uh, what, what is the closest thing to proof that we might actually have that something did happen there. And I'm going to read you the Ramey memo, um, and you can judge it for yourself. It is, it's been decoded, um, Urgent Headquarters, uh, Army Air Force, Washington, 8th July 1947, uh, Vandenberg, from Headquarters 8th AAF, Subject Roswell. FWAAF, I don't, I, I don't know what that means, acknowledges that a disc is next new find west of the cordon. At location was a wreck near operation at the in addition Teapot Airfoil ranch and the victims of the wreck you forwarded to the question mark team at fort worth texas aviators in the disc they will skip or ship for a18th army amu aaf visitors uh, by b29 st or c47 to Wright air force base assess airfoil at roswell um, assist fly out sure about that CIC slash team said this misstate meaning of story and think noon, uh, sin said late today, next sent out of PR public relations, weather balloons would take work if photos used and land demo drawing crews better if they add, I don't know. And then Ramey, um, and what I'm referring to is there's a picture of of uh, Ramey uh, bending down, holding up a piece of what was supposedly crashed at Roswell, which was just a weather balloon. Um, now, of course, this wasn't first stated in the original uh, news story. It was a disc-shaped object, um, and they think the weather balloon was a cover story. And when he was when Ramey was bending down and holding a piece of this uh, weather balloon up. He had a memo in his hand, which of course is upside down and the paper is creased. So what people over the years have been trying to do is to flip it and actually try to decipher what this memo said. And what I just read to you is, is the best uh, so far. Um, I think it's by David Putlisk. Pu- Putlisk? I don't know. But, uh, so, you know, it, it kind of all coincides together. Um, you know, if... If this would have happened and they covered it up, and then we absorbed all these Nazi, brilliant Nazi uh, aerospace engineers and scientists, uh, you know, to back engineer these craft or to apply their technology to craft already existing. Um, and I'm not saying we're being visited by little green men and UFOs, okay? I'm, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. Um, what I am saying is, you know, it's more plausible to me that, you know, if and, and here recently there was there was uh, the Roswell slides that came out May fifth, May which are supposedly actual photographs of, or these little slides from from the Roswell crash from somebody that was working there at the time, and and smuggled them out. Now we can debate their authenticity all day long, but uh, you know it's 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 just hard to say whether or not yeah or nay. What I do know is that. You know, as far as as long as mankind has been around, okay, and I'm talking, you know, thousands of years, maybe a hundred thousands years, um, you know, I think it's the oldest fossil. When we go from, you know, being hunter gatherers in caves and discovering discovering fire, and the wheel, and you know, it takes us, you know, almost a thousand years to to de- start to develop crude machinery such as the printing press. And things of that nature to make our life a little easier. It's hard to make the leap that something was not a catalyst for the giant technological leap that we have made in the past 50 years alone. When you look at the big scale of things, of of humanity and people on this planet, that, I mean, people. You know, in the last hundred years, we've went from carts and buggies you know horses and buggies horse drawn carriages okay to airplanes jet fighters space shuttles okay you know it's just it's craziness you know we went from the telegraph to the telephone to cell phone technology and you know just the you know the the leap in computers and and all that alone in the past 50 years and some say you know you know you could probably argue that, you know, it was just once once that these certain things were figured out that, you know, there was more people and more eyes around to make them better. But I, for one, don't buy that. Um, you just don't go from horse-drawn carriages to Lamborghinis in a hundred years. Um, you know, it, it's never happened before in our entire human history. You know, it just... It has never happened like that. Okay? You know, it's... Fast food restaurants didn't exist before 1950. Okay? In In the past, you know, era, modern era, you know, 12,000 years of, of human civilization, you know, certain things just haven't been. And it's, it's just hard for me to look past that little factoid, that maybe, just maybe, something did happen um, in the 40s and 50s, uh, maybe the Nazis did acquire something, um, or had access to this technology, but for whatever the reason, you know, it, it's let us advance to this point, and I'm sure what we know now, and I mean, and you see the movies, you know, you see what's coming, you know, we're talking holographic computers, you know, that you can touch in the air and move things around, it's all coming, you know. Implants, uh, you know, communication devices, implanted communication devices. You won't need a cell phone anymore, okay? You know, it's, they have Google Glass, you know, where you have the internet right there inside your your glasses. You know, I'm I'm sure they'll find a way to put it in your eyeball, you know, before before uh, they put me into the ground. Um, they'll they'll figure out some way to hook us into the to a computer network. I'm sure of it, and it's just. All these advances come out of the 40s and 50s. You know, we get jet fighters. You know, we don't have these big bulky bombers anymore. These little tiny little uh, one-man uh, machine gun operators. You know, it's just. You know, we go from propellers to jet engines. You know, within 20 years, and a lot of this stems from the uh, aeronautic industry. You know, there was there was a big there was a big bidding war that JFK was a part of, as far as you know given given contracts, government contracts between General Dynamics and uh Boeing and you know certain other ones that you know they were all vying for for government business cuz it's big money, okay? You know, it's big big money. And when it comes to that leap of technology around that era, um you know, that kind of money is worth killing for. And what some people allege Fred Crispin, because he had worked with Boeing for a little while, he was in World War II, he was a, fly, he was a fighter pilot, um, and there's rumblings that he was in, in the intelligence side of it too. Um, there, later on, we have a mysterious letter from someone inside the CIA that acknowledges that Fred Crispin was part of uh, you know some compartmentalized CIA operation. Um, so anyway, back, back to what I wanted to talk to you about today. And, you know, Fred Christman is an interesting character. As most of you know from listening to me or, you know, looking stuff up on your own, you know, during the Garrison investigation, you know, he called Fred Christman, he called Thomas Beckham and, you know, there's. There's rumor, you know, I don't know about documentation because I've never seen the phone records, but that Clay Shaw called uh, Fred Christman with his first phone call, you know, and uh, Thomas Beckham called him too. So they were definitely in touch, and as we learned from Beckham later, he was in touch with him quite a bit. You know, he didn't, he wasn't who he appeared to be. These guys, you know, these, these guys with these innocuous occupations that allow them to travel frequently, uh, live lavish lifestyles, and uh, but he's a substitute teacher, okay. And in, in, in 1960, you know I don't buy it. I'm sorry, you know you're not traveling to New Orleans, you know, 20 times a year for five years straight just to, you know, on a, on a substitute teacher salary to manage some nobody in their you know little shit country career in New Orleans. Okay, sorry, that just doesn't work. You know, we have Crispin connected to the whole UFO phenomenon. Uh, right before Roswell happened, uh, there was a sighting in Maury Island. Um, and, of course, Fred Crispin's involved. You know, a couple of FBI agents died carrying the slag retrieved from the UFO back. when the, Their plane crashed. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of little indicators. Nothing really proving anything, but enough to make you go, hmm, and really think about things. And so I wanted, I wanted to have Ken on to talk about it, but you know, I guess he's not doing interviews right now. If he changes his mind in the future, he said he, he said he would definitely come on. So hopefully he will. But in the meantime, you got me and what I decided to do a couple weeks ago, because I had seen that Thomas Beckham had wrote a book and it's never, never in stock on Amazon, Right. So I put the feelers out on this very show that I wanted to get my hands on a copy of this book. And it's called Remnants of Truth by T.E. Beckham. Okay. Now, as far as I know, this book was written in 2007, I believe, or 2008. There's no date, copyright date on it. Um, At least I don't think there is. I'm not seeing one here as I look through it. Now, um, Thomas Beckham, okay, he is now living as a rabbi of the Hebrew Jewish faith. Rabbi Dr. Beckham has put together a book that brings together the people whom New Orleans DA Jim Garrison tried to prove were involved This book offers a great deal of information and underlying facts. It also shows us what condition America is in and where it's heading. A remarkable book of interest from a remarkable man who has lived more than two lifetimes in one. So, that's a little blurb from the back. Um, This book is very rare. It's self-published, and it's very hard to get a hold of. Uh, Luckily, I got one. And I was disappointed is a very strong word uh, when it comes to describing a work of literature you know I, I, I try to take because I know it takes a lot trust me I've tried and I'm, and I'm doing it right now it's very very hard to write a book very hard um, you know it's a time thing it's a commitment thing it's a uh, it's just a big investment of your time your body your soul your mind And I hate to just dismiss uh, what somebody wrote as disappointing. But when considering what kind of a role you played in the assassination of JFK, allegedly, um, I think I would have liked to have seen Thomas Beckham have himself a writer. Um, I think Beckham would have benefited from having... Uh, Being challenged on certain points and uh, being held to explain more about some things. What what intrigued me most from the beginning, um, is of course at the Garrison trial and the grand jury testimony of of Thomas Beckham. He didn't say much. Uh, He talked in a lot of circles. uh, Didn't really finger anybody. Um, You know, just came off as a you know, somebody that didn't really know a lot about anything and blah, blah, blah. And uh, his, his tune changed a whole hell of a lot. Uh, if you fast forward 10 years. Uh, in his testimony to the HSCA that he was given immunity for, which means he could tell him whatever he wanted, even implicate himself in the murder, and they couldn't touch him because he had immunity. Okay, that's the kind of power that they had, this congressional power for the HSCA. And they granted it to certain individuals. And Thomas Beckham was one of them. And he he told a very different story than what he told at the garrison investigation, at, at the garrison trial. Um, the most glaring thing that he told the HSCA was that, um, and I'll post a link up to... Uh, Richard Gilbride's Thomas Beckham HSCA testimony and you can read it for yourself. I'll put it up there on TLG podcast.com with the, uh, you know, with the, for everything relevant to this episode. Um, and you can go read it for yourself. It's very eye opening. You know, he, he speaks of knowing Lee Oswald, talking to Lee Oswald, um, a lot of interaction with Bannister and Jack Martin and David Ferry and Clay Shaw and, uh, Carlos Marcello, G. Ray Gill, people like that. Um, so, you know, he alleges that Fred Christman was the head of something called the organization, in quotes. That he didn't really know what the organization was or who he represented. Um, it could have been a rogue CIA faction. It could have been uh, some rogue army intelligence operation. It could have been uh, some kind of defense industry, cabal. I mean, who knows? Okay, you know, we just, we just don't know um, at this point. Um, so he really laid it on, you know, that, 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 Chrisman was as slick talking. He was a, basically a fixer. You know, he always drove a nice car, had nice clothes, had money, you know, that he could take care of any situation you're in. You just call him, he'll get you out of it. And he tells a story of, he got arrested for something, um, in Louisiana and he called Chrisman to help him. And then he's. Guy comes, his jailer comes and says, "You know, the FBI, the FBI is here to talk to him." And uh he goes out there, and it's Fred Crismon taking him into custody, and you know, getting him out, you know, just like that, you know, bam. So I guess chrisman had like fake credentials that and got Beckham out of the jam he was in. So little things like that, you know, Beckham are alleges that chrisman was a, a fixer. He could do all kinds of things. He had money, he had cars, you know, he had connections. Uh, he even, he knew where Beckham was at all times, even in different states. He could call him, you know, his phone number wouldn't be listed, but somehow he found him. He even alleges that Chrisman had a phone in his car under the dashboard. Um, you know, this is 20-some years before we get them, you know, like in, like in the movie Wall Street, you know, back in the 80s, you know, we get these big, uh, you know, shoebox cell phones, you know, in your car and stuff, but... Apparently, you know, he said Fred Christman had a phone under the dash, and he, you know, he said this in 1977, you know, referring to 14 years prior. Okay, you know, we didn't, you know, nobody knew what cell phones were in 1977, let alone 63. So these are the little subtle hints of technology um, that kind of make you go, holy crap, you know, maybe this guy was connected to something we don't know about. Um. But back to the book, okay? Now, <laughs> if anybody's looked into Thomas Beckham, okay, it's very easy to see that he was a basically a hood back then, a, uh, a con man, if you will, a procurer of false documents, false certificates, um, things of this nature. <clears throat> Excuse me. He is also admittedly in this book a courier and messenger for uh, Carlos Marcelo um, and anybody else who wanted to hire him. Basically, um, he even says in this book he didn't say it to the HSCA, but he says it in this book. He used to ran he used to run bribe money from Carlos Marcelo to. Uh, Jim Garrison's top investigator Pershing Gervais in in, uh, Garrison's office and and these were payouts you know that dude was dirty he said Um, so things like that you know just make you go hmm damn I'm sorry people I'm sweating to death here it's like 103 outside today and it's humid boy hot and sticky out here so at the behest of well, you know, this book here, Remnants of Truth, it's approximately 130 pages. And maybe 150 pages total, but I, I say 20 pages or so in the back of the book are some of the many certificates that, that Thomas Beckham has been awarded in his life and, and several letters from so called friends of his. That uh, he said he wrote to a hundred of his friends, and and asked them to write a note back, you know, telling them uh, or just what what they would tell somebody about Thomas Beckham, what kind of person he was. You know, these were basically like uh, character requests, you know. And I'll read you a couple when we get there. But what's interesting about this book is that first uh, first page, first time you open it. You know, it says no part of this publication may, may be reproduced or used in any form or by any means, graphic, electronic, or mechanical, including photocopying, recording, taping, or information storage and retrieval systems, without written permission of the author. And that's a very, very odd request. And I don't believe that uh, me talking about it uh, violates any sort of thing like that. I did pay money for this book. This book is mine now um and i'm giving full credit to rabbi thomas edward beckham for writing it believe me and there's a lot of interesting things in this book but like i said it's very short and uh, you know all that he told the hsca about fred christman what really what really interested me is the fact that fred christman in this book takes up exactly let me see here. It takes up exactly two pages. And it's nothing of substance. The organization's not mentioned. Um, nothing. Okay. I mean, here, here's what he says about Christmas. You know, he, he always seemed to be there for me and always knew where I was, no matter what state I lived in, which I already told you. Uh, then it gives you an instance. One time Fred and I were out in a, to a small town in California to get someone out of trouble. Fred and I went to the Hall of Justice and waited until closing time. Both of us had two small two-way radios. I hid in a closet. When the coast was clear, I got out and ransacked the offices until I found what we came for. Fred was waiting outside so we could leave. Um, I'll never forget when Fred sprung me from a small town jail in Louisiana by posing as the FBI, like I already told you. <laughs> and... Uh, when I walked out, the first thing I saw was Fred dressed in a gray suit. He handcuffed me, signed some paper, and took me to, to a car and put me in the back seat. We drove a few blocks down before Fred took the cuffs off, and when we drove to Mississippi where I was living at the time, Fred left the next day. And he says he saw him a couple years later when he moved to Washington State where Fred and I worked until I moved to Nebraska. I like Fred, but I always wondered whose side he was on. He was very well educated and always making notes. And here's the part. <clears throat> Fred had an auto with a phone that was hid under the dash. He always carried a handcuff key fixed in the back of his belt inside of it. He said it may come in handy one day and it was better to have it than not have it. And he always kept a bus station lockbox in a couple of places that I knew about. He always had a way to get special IDs or a business card to help his cover when he needed it. He was always very calm and able to walk into any building without ever being questioned. He said if you look like you know what you're doing, no one will ever question you. And believe me, he knew what he was talking about. And that's all he says about Fred Chrisman in this book. That's it. That's it. Um, you know, and admittedly, in Thomas Beckham's own words, um, he wrote this book <laughs> at one in the morning. I think he said it took him like uh, two hours to write it. So yeah, and there's a lot of grammatical errors, there's a lot of uh clerical errors, spelling, uh punctuation, missing words, you know, it's things like that. Look like you know, he's banging these out on the typewriter and they photocopied them all and stuck them as a book. But whatever. Let me see here. Yeah, he says, by no means is this a memoir or a statement or confession in any form. I have written this to clear up thousands of questions I've been asked over the years. And there are still a great deal of missing facts due to the strange death of many witnesses. And which is why he said that he didn't say anything for a long time. Because people were dying around him. Um, people were disappearing and dying. And he goes on to mention, uh... But as far as I ran, someone always managed to find me, like my CIA buddies, Jack Martin and Fred Chrisman. Uh, You know, things like that. Within ten minutes, he says, Jack Martin and Fred Crisman called me about the same thing. Now, as most people know, Jack Martin, um, of course not his real name, I think his real name was Edward Suggs or something to that effect, was... Um, a lot of people allege, you know, he was and what Beckham is saying, that he was the the big CIA there in New Orleans, big CIA presence um, and that he was likely a double agent, okay, whatever that means, I mean, I guess he was making money off both ends of the spectrum when it suited him Um, everybody in town knew Jack Martin, you know, and uh, I'm trying to think here He mentions uh, meeting somebody named Roswell Thompson. Uh, They told him that Jim Garrison was a nutcase trying to build a case on the JFK theory, and if I was not careful that I would be roped into it. Why me, I asked. They said, we just told you Garrison's some kind of a nut, and you better act like one too. When you get in there, or we won't be able to help you. My mind was racing back and forth. It was hard to collect my thoughts in the right order. Now... They're talking about roping him. He's talking about getting roped into the Kennedy assassination. But he told the HSCA in 1977 that, in the presence of Clay Shaw, Jack Martin, G. Ray Gill, Sergio Araka Smith, that they compiled a package and that he couriered it to Dallas and handed it personally to um, Lawrence Howard, okay, in Dallas, like two weeks before the assassination. But he's saying they're trying to rope him into this. I mean, come on, people. You know, if you actually did that, and and you know, you're involved, bro. You're a big integral part. You know, you know things that nobody else should know. Um, I highlighted some things in here. Some of this stuff's not worth reading because it's 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 a lot of his uh, opining about uh, Lee Oswald. Um, he claims to have known Hale Boggs, um, and that Hale knew what was going on. Um, let's see here. Uh, Marine stated that he was a poor shot at the very best, according to Lieutenant Colonel A. G. Folsom Jr. He was the person who evaluated Lee's Marine Corps marksmanship at May sixth, uh, nineteen fifty nine, El Toro. And determined he was a poor shot. Okay. Um, he also intersperses these little quotes in here. Like, you know everything or you know nothing. Uh, I think it's safe to say whatever you think you know, you don't know at all, for we all have our own personal opinions. And I don't know if these are like supposed to be subtle hints without actually coming out and saying something. Like, you know everything or you know nothing? I mean, come on, man. It's really not that simple. But, uh... And here he says, I knew the following people, and uh, they all knew me. And here's another quote. You be the judge, and you'll see how I got involved by just knowing people. He knew Jack Martin, Jack Ruby, Fred Lee Chrisman, Guy Bannister, A. Roswell Thompson, Lawrence Howard, Lee Harvey Oswald, G. Ray Gill, Hale Balls, Carlos Marcello, Clay Shaw... Clay Bertrand, aka Clay Bertrand, David Ferry, Lauren Hall, Aaron Cohn, Colonel Thomas Burbank, Jack Grimmelman, W.T. Grant, Louis Rebell, Joe Newborough. Just to, just to name a few that I can still remember, he says. Um, so, you know, it's this guy's entrenched as he was in New Orleans and he knew all these people. Um, yeah, he's involved in some form or fashion. You know, these names keep popping up. In the, in the narrative of the assassination, for a reason, people. Um, and it's not just one giant coincidence, as some would have you believe. Um, he praises Joan Mellon for trying to uh, do her best and being a fine, understanding Hebrew lady. Uh, he thinks people should read her book, A Farewell to Justice. Uh, Jack Martin was always an agency asset, but at the beginning I never knew. My friend Guy Bannister and even Carlos Marcello warned me not to trust Jack Martin, but would not say why. They only told me to play it safe in any business I have with him. Uh, Jack Martin always had a badge and a special ID that got him in any place he wanted at any time, even federal agencies. I asked Jack one time how he did it. He remarked, take care of your own business, kid. I knew that Jack had some type of commission but he always uh, because he always carried a gun on his side. So, yeah, Uh, he claimed that Jack had a a priest frock in his house. Um, He said he was not a Roman Catholic priest. He said he was uh, ordained in the old Catholic Church of North America. He asked me if I wanted to be one. I said, well, how can a Jewish person be a priest? We believe in God, not a Trinity. Jack then told me I needed to be ordained as a cover for something that was coming up soon. I said, what's that? He said, I would know soon. Um, So, yes, Thomas Beckham was ordained as a priest with the Old Catholic Church of North America, along with Jack Martin and uh, David Ferry, <clears throat> among other notables. He also said that he met Lee Oswald at one of these churches. Um, he talks to meeting Jack Ruby here at uh, at one of these meetings as well. Uh, he says Lee Oswald was there a lot anyway. Sometimes he would meet me there, waiting outside for me to arrive he said lee had a key to this one church the united uh 352 rampart street let me see exactly what this united catholic mission fathers uh 352 rampart street but it was uh, only a cover for a group named the united cuban mission forces this was a group formed to free cuba only jack martin and i had a key i asked jack if i should give lee a key he said hell no I don't know why Jack and I were the only ones who had a key and why he didn't want to give one to Lee Oswald, uh, but Lee was there a lot anyway. Sometimes he would meet me there and uh, wait outside for me to arrive. There were a number of meetings at the mission, including notables uh, showing up such as Sergio Aracca Smith, Clay Shaw, David Ferry, and many I did not know. Uh, when a chunky little man walked up to me and said he was Jack Ruby, he then said, I bet you're that hillbilly singer. He asked if I'd ever sung in Texas. He said if I ever needed help to get any show dates in Texas, just to ask Jack to call him. He uh, he had an Oriental woman, woman with him that never said two words. Thousands of dollars came into that mission for the anti-Cuban groups. The government took a lot of it when they picked me up at the airport. Where it went, I don't know. Uh, then he goes on to talk about Guy Bannister and Jack Martin and, and what they were doing there. He said Guy Bannister had a recording system. They recorded every conversation that went on inside of his office. Um, that'd be nice to have, but uh, I don't think we're ever going to see that. Uh, let's see here. And He goes on to talk a little bit about David Ferry. Um uh, and how I knew, lead. David and Jack Martin were always on and off mad at each other for one reason or another. They were both fighting over the Bay of Pigs. David flew over Cuba with two other men taking pictures, and the way I heard it, he almost got killed. Jack told him he was getting all the shitty jobs because he was a piece of shit, and boy, the shit really hit the fan. David was always telling me that Jack Martin was an asshole, that one thing I had to agree with him on. Uh, but you could also see them together at one time or another frequently, uh, for work. They put their differences aside. Uh, he says Beckham says I flew to Mexico and Cuba, okay, with David Ferry on business along with Jack Martin. The trip to Cuba was for Jack to, Jack to fi- was for Jack to fix someone, whatever that means. Um, on the way back, he seemed to think he had done a great job to the point that he was proud of himself. I was bringing back money for someone. I was also there collecting information for my own files. I don't think Jack ever knew. I worked directly with Jack Martin on fifteen or twenty assignments. One thing I remember about him that he smoked too must, I don't too too much, I guess, uh, and was always on a payphone. The word hell was always on his lips. It was hell this or hell that. I never once seen him without a hat on, and he never took it off. Uh, and then he talked about somebody slipping Jack Martin to Mickey, and blah 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 blah. Now, one revelation that. that uh, That uh, Thomas Beckham has in, in this book is that he comes clean that he was a CIA agent. He was talking about A. Roswell Thompson, uh, trying to help him in the show biz. This is how and when Jack Martin came into my life. A CIA agent who used me as a cover and drew me into the agency. Okay. So, Thomas Beckham is, is claiming to be a CIA agent. Okay. And he also claims that he tried to kill Castro at some point. Um, now, this Roswell Thompson guy, okay, he was, he, was, uh, he was running for governor of Louisiana. He called himself Louisiana's new kingfish, okay? Uh, he proudly carried his KKK card. He was 100% for the white race and would always ask me to pick up and sing Bye Bye Blackbird at public meetings. I was always thinking that someone was going to shoot him. Maybe both of us. Rozzy was a true racist. Uh, he had a bar, and there was a sign on the door saying, N-words keep out. And he meant every word of it. Okay, and this... <laughs> Jesus, I mean, this was just in the early 60s, okay, in New Orleans. Um, so that's Roswell. Let me find. And then he starts to opine a little bit here. He says, Then I remember Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey Oswald. How could Jack Ruby kill him? I could not even think straight. Lee and Jack Ruby were friends. What the hell was really going on, and why was I right in the middle of it all when most of the other witnesses were dead? I was trained how to stay alive as well as how to kill if needed. One thing for sure, I was going to stay alive if at all possible. Okay. So... You know, it's like part of the time he's afraid to admit that that he was associated with the CIA, and other times he admits it, uh, you know, as far as being trained enough to kill. Um, Then he talks about Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, I only wish they knew him as I did. To this day, maybe because I know the truth, I still see him as a good friend. I remember the first time I met him. Lee and I met through Jack Martin, who was my manager-promoter. Lee told Jack told Lee I played guitar and sung. Lee asked me if I was any good. Sure, I said, but I guess that's up to whoever hears me. Lee said he would like to hear me sing. From then on, Lee and I became good friends, and to this day, people ask more about Lee than they do about JFK. But I only remember Lee as a friend. Uh, we would go all over New Orleans to clubs and parties, and before long, I found out that Lee knew most of my friends, and I knew most of his. I asked Lee what high school he'd gone to in New Orleans. He told me that he did not go to high school in New Orleans. He went to high school in Texas and only a couple years older than me. I think he told me that he was born in 39. Lee said that he went to school in Fort Worth, Texas and then jokingly said that's where you should be singing your cowboy and hillbilly songs. Not here in New Orleans, but in Texas or Nashville. I asked him if he was born in Texas and he said no. He was born right here in New Orleans uh, and he, that he loved New Orleans. A number of times Jack Martins would show up and ask me in a nice way to take a walk so he could talk to Lee alone. I remember Lee telling me that his dad died when he was born. He said he joined the Marines, but later he was forced to get out and help support his mother. I remember telling him that he did the right thing. I even told him I would have done the same thing. He smiled. That Then he told me that he had served in Japan. Okay. Uh, religion never came up. And, uh... Hold no, he held no ill will towards Mr. Beckham because he's Jewish. <clears throat> Lee then asked if I knew that Karl Marx was a Jew. I remarked there are lots of Jewish people everywhere. I asked him what he was. He said he really didn't know. and He looked a little sad after he said it. <clears throat> okay, so he goes on and talks about all this interaction. Um, and he told of a specific instance to the HSCA where he actually met uh, Lee on the street as he was handing out these flyers in new orleans of which we do have news footage of okay and there is a fellow in a suit in the background that looks a hell of a lot like thomas beckham with his pompadour haircut and he's very aware that it, there's a camera rolling in on him and he very rarely or he tries to hide his face you know he doesn't he doesn't ever look at the camera for a long period of time um so it's while it's not 100 percent definite it looks like him okay uh he c- possibly could have been there he says that he waited around for lee after he was done leafleting and uh they went and grabbed a coke and they were talking and uh he heard lee call mr bannister chief and which is important because to the hsca he, he told beckham don't worry the chief's got my back so i had always thought he, maybe he was referring to hoover but no he was talking about bannister as the chief okay because he was asking him, "Leave. What you know? You, what are you doing this crazy stuff for? Here out pro Castro leaflets. You know, because you know we're supposed to be anti Castro here. You know." And he said, "Don't worry. You know, the chief's got my back." So apparently, he was referring to Bannister, who was, who was obviously telling him to do this, um, for one reason or another, to out his communists. Yeah, he was saying that uh, Aaron Cohn and uh, Gervais, Pershing Gervais were crooks with badges. Uh, Aaron Cohn was a good friend of most of the crooks on the street as well as Jack Martin and Carlos Marcello. Jack was always delivering papers to Aaron Cohn, and you would see Carlos and Aaron writing together or at the Town and Country Motel together. Jack was always there with them. The funny part is Aaron Cohn headed the Met- Metropolitan Crime Commission, okay, And Pershing Gervais was one of Jack Martin's buddies who was the chief investigator for the New Orleans DA Jim Garrison. Okay, I remember him as a crook who took money from local nightclub owners and anyone else that he could. He was always trying to pick up dancers at clubs and would get really mad when he didn't score. He could be found in the French Quarter or at the Fountain Blue Motor Hotel. Most of the club owners tried to stay away from him uh, and not make him mad. Uh, Jim Garrison had to know something was wrong. Everybody on the street did. Okay, so maybe Jim Garrison was hip to this, or maybe he wasn't. I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, but there was a lot of crime going on in New Orleans. Thousands of dollars came in from pinball games that paid off cash. The cops were paid off, looked the other way, and they did. Um, then he talks about Oliver Stone. Um, he says, Long after I thought everything was over, two men came to see me in Louisville, Kentucky. They were with the movie maker Oliver Stone. They informed me that Oliver Stone was going to make a movie on the JFK assassination. I knew I wanted no involvement in, of any type in any way. So I used reverse psychology by acting like I was some type of fame seeker and con man. <laughs> Not a stretch here. Uh, I wanted them to believe what they had already read about me, that and that was the truth. And this way they would steer clear of me and go no further. They packed him and left, thank God. And the movie came out without me and many others. It was more about Jim Garrison than anything. But I heard that it was just a movie based on a few little facts. In no way am I saying this to discredit Oliver Stone, who I feel is a great filmmaker. Blah dee blah dee blah. Okay, and here's what he says when he's talking about uh, giving his HSCA testimony at the federal courthouse in in, in New Orleans on May. May 1978, I was deposed at the federal courthouse in New Orleans. This is a time I I want to forget for a long time. I was asked a great deal of questions by Attorney Jim McDonald, most of them questions about homosexual things. Only because he was trying to upset me and make me out to be a liar, unreliable. Uh, All he wanted to do was embarrass me. I think he was a closet homosexual. Uh, There was a lot of homosexuals connected to this case. Uh, But I never was that way. I knew right away that he did not believe anything I said. He was continuously trying to interject his own answers to the questions he was asking. I kept my mind elsewhere in order not to think about anything I was being asked. But two of the nicest and most well-trained investigators I ever met were L.J. Delsa and Robert Burris. Uh, They were after the truth in the JFK assassination, and they were going for it. They were straightforward but understanding, and I have never seen them again. And the reason for that is because they were told to back off of Thomas Beckham, who they really, really wanted to give a lie detector to. And he agreed to it and he couldn't get, the the house to fund it. And, uh, that became a problem for LJ Delsa and Robert Burris, who much like, uh, and Fonzie were great investigators. They just had no support and no means to do what they wanted to do, to do their job correctly and find the truth. Um, so that was kind of cool for Beckham to add that in there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me see here. It says if you if you stop and ask yourself, why were Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby friends? Why were Clay Shaw, a CIA contract pilot? Uh I think he's talking about David Ferry, Guy Bannister, CIA and FBI, Jack Martin, CIA operative myself and many Cubans linked together. All I know for sure is that I was a runner and a pickup agent. As far as I know, I was the only one in our group that functioned as a pickup and runner agent, which included messages and money, along with other things I wish to not talk about, for it has nothing to do with JFK. Uh, So, you know, he mentions uh, Richard Case Nagel. And then he tells of his little stint to Dallas uh, where he met Lawrence Howard and handed him the package but uh, the people there in G. Ray Gill's office uh, all he says was we were all at Attorney G. Ray Gill's office who who was David Ferry's attorney and Carlos Marcelo's attorney when I was given a large brown envelope to deliver to Dallas, Texas I was driven to the airport given a couple magazines uh, where I put the envelopes that the attorney had given me He told me he knew that I liked to talk a lot and he said he did not want to hurt my feelings but what he had to say was very important that I shouldn't speak to anyone on the plane as I I wasn't to wear any jewelry or draw attention to myself. Now to the HSCA he stated uh, that there was a lot of people present at this meeting um, but he doesn't name them here. He only says that it was G. Ray Gill. So Who knows what the truth is there. Uh, He also states that he he met uh, former Cuban dictator uh, Fluences Batista in person. Uh, He says he went to the Monsanto airport with Jack Martin and Guy Bannister met a small plane and out stepped Batista who handed over a briefcase full of money and handed it to Jack Martin. They all looked like they were personal friends and the dictator handed uh, Guy Bannister an envelope out of his pocket. I never asked him what was going on and they never told me. After they all hugged each other before they left, the former dictator even waved at me in the car. The guy told me, think about it, Tom. You've been a personal part of history. Hell, kid, clear your head. That was Batista of Cuba. And I j- jokingly said, so what? He's uh, he's out of work now. Jack replied, yes, but he has a hell of a retirement plan. Uh, guy said very little, as he always did. And I bet the case they had had over $100,000 in U.S. money. And this was going to fund uh, these anti-Castro uh, rebels, supposedly. And uh, he has another quote here. He says, I remember one time a CIA agent telling me that the only time you need to tell the truth is when you're caught in a lie. But first, make sure you don't have another way out. Hmm. Sounds like words to live by to me. So we'll scooch ahead here. Um, This is just a little blurb all to itself. It says, Sometimes it's not good to help someone. There's a loud banging at the door of the radio station. K-O-W-H. Only Mike Starr and Joe Martin were there. Two men with badges pushed their way in saying, CIA! They came for Joe Martin and his JFK assassination tapes. The only CIA in Omaha was Fred. Speaking about Chrisman. So... I mean, who knows if Christmas was going around and gathering up information and evidence in the case? You know, it's it's interesting to think about people. Um, and then later on in the book, you know, Thomas Beckham even st- still claims to be threatened to this day. Um so after A Farewell to Justice by John Mellon came out, and I was mentioned heavily in it in my role and possibly in the assassination. Um, he was stalked at a shopping mall. And, uh, later there was a car with no tags, um, outside of his residence for weeks. <laughs> and, uh, that he even went out and, and asked them what they were doing. Um, and he, you know, he likes to point out that, <clears throat> you know, that, that, that evil was taken over after JFK's death, you know, like 9-11, Desert Storm, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, the Oklahoma City bombing, children killer, killing other children in schools across America, Bellway Snipers who killed over 16 people at random, the Davidians, um, Waco, uh, the death of Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Jamestown, uh, you know, he goes on and on, Clinton getting in trouble with the women, uh, Catholic Church and priests, uh, with, uh, molestation charges, AIDS, Dr. Jack Kevorkian he says I say this in order for I say all of this in order for us to understand that we must stay in the sight of God as a people who love and care for him and he will protect our nation yeah well from all that it doesn't sound like he's doing a very good job Tommy um and he goes on and talks about you know what a great nation we should be and and how much he still loves his country um he has a quote in here from, from the CIA. It says like a blade of grass, we we all must grow. Your training has caused your arena of thought to be able to do anything without concern. You exist and don't exist for all purposes. The agency, there are more questions than there are answers for every answer. There will be more questions. Just weird stuff like that. You know, like come on, bro. And here's an example of a testimonial letter. Um, from uh, Rabbi Carl Jacobs, I have known Thomas Edward Beckham, uh, who has been a friend of mine for nearly fifteen years. I remember when he became rabbi; he was always trying to teach gentiles about Hebrew faith and getting into trouble. I was thoughtless when I heard about him being some kind of secret agent or whatever in JFK assassination. This I thought myself could not be true—not the loving, kind, and understanding Thomas Beckham I knew. But after a while, I remembered something he said in a meeting in Los Angeles yesterday. Does not matter. We have to stop living in our past if we are ever going to change. Yesterday is gone; we have only today that will also become yesterday. Then I knew this was and was not my friend. He was not the same old person he once was. He was now a fine person. Okay, so apparently Thomas Beckham quoted this guy like lyrics from the Paul McCartney song "Yesterday," and you know some of this stuff. Like I said, it's it's hard to decipher. You know, some are small, and I've known Rabbi Beckham for nearly thirty-five years. Whatever he does, he does it well. He is a fine family man who is always self-giving. Uh, blah blah. I think he was written a very educational book that will answer on bringing together missing parts of the JFK assassination. I wish him only the best, Doctor Frank Stranges. not Frank Sturgis, Frank Stranges. Um. All right. Now here's the Thomas Beckham we all know and love here. It says, oh, on the following pages I have listed just a few of my over 2,000 honors, degrees, and titles I have proudly received to date. I could not list all of them in this book. I have received a number of honors from other countries of which I am very proud, but to others they mean nothing. Okay. So, you know, he's got like, he's an honorary, you know, Kentucky colonel. (laughs) I think it's one of them. Uh... You know, stuff like that. You know, I don't know how where he earned his doctorate from or what, what not. And the book concludes like this. It says, who really killed JFK? We have the proof, but no one wants to prove it. Why was JFK killed? We know why. The CIA, the mob, and the Cubans all wanted him out of power, out of office, but no one wants to prove it. There will be book after book, big and small, with detailed information about the JFK killing, But until someone with power does something, nothing will ever be done. But long, or before long, it will just be covered up in history. This is not the end. It may well be the beginning. And this is how he ends his book. And you know what, Tommy? You might be right there. Because, you know, like... like, i like to point out here okay, we, got, we had the JFK Records Act in 1993 which said that the CIA had 25 years to release all of their files on the JFK assassination and you'd think they'd do a little bit every year try to get it over with and done before the deadline but that's not the case they still have almost 4,000 documents that they have not released and maybe more than that um, and they're gonna wait till the last minute. They're gonna make us wait till the last minute until they absolutely have to do something. And even then, I would not be surprised if Barack Obama or whoever is, in, or Hillary or whoever is the next president, uh, stop, steps in to stop it and say they don't have to and claim national security and all this other horse shit. And, and you know what a lot of people smarter than me say is you know. If Lee Oswald did it, it's cut and dry, okay, the Cold War's over, Russia's not our enemy anymore, Um, times have changed, technology's changed, spycraft's changed, you know, none of this shit's national security anymore. If Lee Oswald shot JFK, and the evidence shows us that, and we have proof in the CIA documents, then just let him out. You know, what is the holdup? What? You know, I, we don't care what your methods were back then to, to, you know, to turn an agent or whatever. That's not how people spy anymore, you know. And, and if it is, you know, like everybody knows, you know, like I'm sure, you know, the Russians don't know that America or whoever might send a spy over, you know, to, to, to infiltrate their ranks. You know, we know we, they know this. We've been trying to do it for 50 years, You know, or more. You know, it's just a part of the game we play with each other. You know, it's not like there's a lot of paper files being transferred here, transferred there. You know, it's, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is on computers. It's hacking now. It's, it's, It's spying using technology, you know, satellites, cameras. You know, we don't need to follow, you know, Lee Oswald from place to place on foot. We can do it from... You know, thirty miles up in the sky. You know, we can pinpoint a person and trace them. Let me ask y'all something. And they touched on it a little bit in the new Fast and Furious Seven movie. And I know you'd be like, "All right, come on, Rob, don't don't sit here and talk to me about this God's eye technology." Look, people, I'm sure they have it. Okay, it's not a stretch. All right, next time you're at a stoplight, look up above the look up above the uh, the lights there. And you'll see on like a three or four foot pole, okay, you'll see a camera pointed in your direction. You'll see a camera pointed away from you. You'll see a camera pointed to your left and to your right, okay? They're at almost every intersection where there's traffic lights. There's cameras, and they are recording constantly. Don't be surprised if they use facial recognition technology on the software, you know, when they screen that video, you know, how many how many times have you ever seen footage from one of those traffic cameras at an intersection? I never have. You know, sure there's traffic cameras like set up along an interstate, you know, like the you know, the lady in the traffic bureau in the morning when she gives you the traffic, you get the little picture of the traffic, but you never see that footage from intersections. Even of major crashes and things like this that happen at major intersections you know, they always try to have to determine whose fault it was. Well, well, gee, dumbass, why don't you look on that camera, rewind it, (laughs) and see what really happened, okay? You know, it's not hard, you know, to have either facial recognition software or license plate reading technology. We know they have it. You know, everywhere you go, you know, there's backup cameras in, in vehicles now. You know, there's dash cams. There's, there's license plate readers fixed on cop cars now. You know, There there's light uh, cameras at every intersection. Every ATM you pass by. Every convenience store, you're on camera. Every department store, you're on camera. You know, every public place, you're on camera. You know, everybody has a camera in their cell phone. You're on camera. You know? Because they can tap into these cameras whenever they want. I hope you know that. Um, you know? That's why I don't, I don't deal with the Facebook app. You know, you get, you're, when, you, when, you, when you have that Facebook app on your phone, you're giving Facebook permission to turn that camera and the microphone on whenever they want to. They control it, not you. I mean, you control it too, but they can turn it on through that app without you even knowing about it. Yeah, to collect data. To mine data, you know, so they can figure out what ad to put on your page next, you know. Like say you, you know, you and your wife go out to a nice uh, a winery one weekend. Okay, now the GPS on your phone knows where you are. Okay, you have an eye on your phone that can see because, of course, everybody has to have their phone out all the time, messing with it, playing on it, uh, seeing if they got a new message or a new uh, notification or or whatever. Okay, so that that eye sees where you are, the GPS knows where you are in your phone, that app talks to your other GPS app and sees, oh, this guy's at a winery, he must like wine. And don't be surprised if a couple days later or the next day, on your Facebook wall, you have an ad for, you know, Joe Blows Wine, okay? This is how it works, okay? That's why I only use it through the browser, that way it can't you know, commandeer my phone. You have to really be particular about the permissions of apps that you should put on your phone uh, because they will do whatever they want. But enough of me opining on my government conspiracy angle of the day. And back to the book. Um, You know, apparently this cat is still alive and kicking and and is, of course, a rabbi and is a substance abuse counselor still living in... Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, my buddy Ted Rubenstein said he was going to call him. I don't know if he ever did or if he did and nobody answered or weren't cooperative. I don't know. Uh, if he hears this show and gets pissed off that I'm reading parts of his book, I'll let you know. Um, but I think it's part of the fair use policy. You know, I'm, You know, he self-published a book that hardly nobody's ever going to see. You know, I was lucky and, and got this from a small bookstore actually in Louisville, um, you know, for a song and a dance, pretty much. And was a brand new book, a brand new copy anyway. So, I was lucky to get that. But, like I said, I was a little disappointed. I, I just don't know why these people won't subject themselves to a good interview. Like, you know, I'm sure he talked to Joan Mellon, and I would think that Joan Mellon would be a better interviewer than, than that. You know, just letting him get away with saying what, what we said and, uh, not really giving her much, you know, I'd be like, look, man, the time's always tough for you, dude. You know, you've said this, then you said that, then you're saying this now, what is the truth? You know, it's gotta be somewhere in the middle, you know, that's, that's basically what it is. You know, and some people dismiss Beckham. Uh, because he was a con man, you know, they they dismiss him all together. they just making up a story, you know, to get rich and famous. But you know what he told the HSC, the HSCA was never made public. I mean, at least not in a general sense. I mean, I'm sure this was buried in the archive somewhere until somebody pulled it out. And the only place that I've ever seen it uh, is from Richard Gilbride. And uh, I've never seen it anywhere else. So, you know, props to him for digging it up. But it wasn't like Beckham was doing this, you know, for money and fame or whatever. You know, he's implicating himself in the murder of JFK. And, you know, he ran he ran the plans to Lawrence Howard. Okay, and 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 you can just miss that all you want, until, okay, until you come across the fact that Lawrence Howard and Lauren Hall were run, used to run guns through Dallas. They were caught doing it two months before the assassination. Or was it a month? I don't know. And then they were involved in, in picking up a rifle in Los Angeles you know, a couple days before the assassination. Jerry Patrick Hemmings' right, right, Heming's rifle, the .30-06, uh, was it Johnson, 30 6 And that this rifle was found in Dallas. Okay with with somebody else's fingerprints on it from Los Angeles at this detective agency. The FBI showed up at this detective agency in Los Angeles the next morning, Saturday the 23rd, and wanted to know if the guy's fingerprints on this rifle was in Dallas yesterday. And they had to explain to the FBI man that no, uh, yeah, Mr. Lawrence Hall, or Mr. Lauren Hall, and Lawrence Howard had just picked that rifle up a couple days before, got it out of Hawk, and left with it. Okay, so if this rifle was never found in Dallas, how, how would it get traced back to, to uh, Los Angeles? Uh, you know, with the question of, have you been to Dallas? And this is the very next morning. So, you know, there's, there's little pieces like that that Beckham would have never knew about. Um, that story about the Johnson thirty out 6 rifle, is not one that's known about by a lot of people, but it, it can be documented with FBI documents. Okay, it's just the rifle disappears; it's nowhere to be found. You know, just we just know that it's Jerry Patrick Hammond's rifle, and that Lauren Lauren Hall and Lawrence Howard picked it up from from uh, a detective or uh, like a pawn shop place in Los Angeles a couple of days before the assassination, or a week a week or two before the assassination. You know, we know these guys were mercenaries. They were killers. You know, they're just bad dudes all around. And when Delsa, the investigator that interviewed Beckham, left Lawrence Howard's house, okay, after interviewing him, he looked at his partner, Burris, and said, You know what? (laughs) I think we just met the motherfucker who killed Kennedy. And that, my friends... Is a remnant of truth. This son of a bitch is in the can. Of people banged up this satellite down directly to your ears. This is your boy Rob Clark. Thanking you for listening. TLGpodcast.com.